0: Well, let's take our Bibles and stand as we read the Word of God together this morning. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, we will be looking at verses 1 through 6 in our reading together this morning. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your eternal purpose, that the Lord Jesus Christ would die for a people that He would make into a body, a bride. And that there would be this wondrous, mystical unity that we share together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, we also thank You That as those who are already one in Christ, you have called us to live that out in our practice. That we would be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That we would all walk with humility and gentleness and patience and showing tolerance for one another in love. Father, we pray that the work of the Spirit would be evident within this local church by uniting our hearts together as one body. Father, it is our desire to honor You, to please You, for Jesus Christ to be exalted in and through us. And we pray to that end even this morning. I pray, O God, that You would help us to overcome any distraction in our minds. I pray that if there are any sins that are unconfessed, that You would cause us to turn from them even now and to ask for Your mercy We pray that you would open your word to us. May we see your your truth that you have revealed, and may we be transformed by it. We thank you for being our great God. We thank you for your grace, your love, your comfort, and your kindness to us. And therefore, we give ourselves to you with great joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for leading us in worship through song. It is such a privilege to sing the praise of our great God in heaven. And it is a privilege to turn to His Word, which we do now. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. The title of this message is An Appeal for Church Unity. An Appeal for Church Unity. Let me read Philippians 2 1 through 4 as we begin our time together this morning. The Apostle Paul writes Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, If any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with all humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves." Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You may be familiar with the fictional story about the man who became stranded on a small island all by himself. Fifteen years later, he was discovered and rescued. And as he was leaving the island, the captain of the ship asked him about the three buildings That were on the small island. The man said, The first one was my house, and the second building was my church. To which the captain replied, Well, what about the third building? And the man said, That's where I used to go to church. That's supposed to be funny. You can laugh there. (laughs) I'm not good at humor sometimes, I guess. That story is humorous to us only because we are all too familiar with disunity in the church. As we all know, unity is very elusive in the church. But to be honest with you, there is really nothing funny about disunity in the church. Disunity in the church is shameful. It is dishonoring to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it cripples the testimony of the church to the world. Disunity, beloved, is nothing short of a scandal. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul gives a list of 15 deeds of the flesh, and eight of them, that is, more than half of them, are sins of disunity, enmities, strife, jealousy. Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. Paul is warning that these things are not from God. They are not the fruits of the Spirit, but rather they are the fruits of the flesh. But the reality is that even as believers, even as those who love and know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are still capable of committing sins of disunity. And that is why Paul warns the Galatians as he does. In a message that I recently listened to by John MacArthur, he said that what he hates the most in the church is apathy. But what he fears the most in the church is is disunity, and I believe the Apostle Paul feared the very same thing. Unfortunately, disunity in the church is nothing new. It has existed almost as long as the church itself has existed. When the church was born on the day of Pentecost next to, there was a honeymoon period in which the church experienced an amazing level of unity. Acts 2 and Acts 4 indicate to us that those who believed were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship. They had all things in common to such a degree that they were selling their property and their possessions to make sure that there was nobody who had a need. They were of one heart, one mind, and one soul. But that honeymoon period came to an end in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 when the church experienced its very first bout of disunity. And from that point on, from Acts 6 1, disunity has always and continued to be a problem in the church. I don't know if you realize this or not, but when Paul wrote his letters in the New Testament to churches, do you understand that in every single letter to a church, he either warned them about disunity, exhorted them to unity, or did both? There is no exception to his letters to the churches. Also, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the very first sin that he confronted was the sin of disunity. Disunity. Now keep that in mind when you understand that there was incest in the church. But before Paul ever confronted the sin of incest, in chapter 5, he confronted the sin of disunity, and he spent four chapters laboring to exhort the church to unity. So, beloved, even in the New Testament church, even in the early period, there was no church that was immune from disunity. Whether it was the church in Jerusalem, which was the very first church, or whether it was the Romans, or the Corinthians, or the Galatians, or the Ephesians, or the Colossians, or the Thessalonians, or even the Philippians. No church is immune from disunity. Now, I say even the Philippians because out of all of the churches that we have in the New Testament, I believe the church in Philippi was the healthiest. But even they, even they were not immune from having disunity creep into their fellowship. This unity is very much like a venomous snake that is always lurking in the shadows, if you will, just waiting for the opportunity to inflict its deadly poison on the unity of the church. It is a constant danger. It is a constant threat for the people of God. Now, as we consider the disunity that was being experienced in the church at Philippi, to be sure, it was not as severe as that in Corinth or as severe as that in the churches of Galatia. But the seeds of disunity had definitely been sown in their assembly, and the Apostle Paul is writing the book of the Philippians to warn them about this and to prevent these seeds from sprouting. He is wanting to nip it in the bud, as Barney Fife would say. As Paul writes to the Philippians, his deepest concern with regard to the disunity was its negative impact on their corporate testimony and on its negative impact in terms of their ability to advance the gospel. What you need to understand about disunity is that it retards evangelism. It is a hindrance to evangelism, and therefore Paul calls them to unity for the sake of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. We could say it this way, Paul calls the Philippians to a gospel unity, an evangelistic unity. Now, you will remember from last time that we began a new section in Philippians, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 27. And we said that this new section runs all the way to chapter 2 and verse 18. And the overarching theme of this entire section is Christian conduct that is worthy of the gospel. Paul's concern for the Philippian church was not that they had deviated from the content of the gospel, but his concern was that they were deviating from the conduct of the gospel. As believers, we are not only to be faithful to the doctrine that is contained within the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to be faithful to living the gospel out, and that was the great concern on Paul's heart in regard to the Philippian church, that they were not living out the gospel as they should And therefore, Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 27, this is the first command in the epistle, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the first command, and it really governs this entire section going all the way to chapter 2 and to verse 18. All of this that Paul is exhorting the church to That we are seeing this morning and the weeks to come is all about how are we as a church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his gospel. This command in verse 27, as we said last time, is the sum and the substance of all Christian living. It governs all Christian conduct. Further, I believe as Paul addresses the theme of unity here, this is the most potent passage anywhere in the Bible on the theme of the unity of God's people. Beginning here in verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul exhorts the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by standing firm in one spirit like soldiers who are guarding their post. In verse 27, they are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by striving together with one mind like athletes who are competing together, not against each other. There in verse 27, and they are also to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by suffering fearlessly in the face of their opponents in verses 28 through 30. Paul tells them not to be intimidated, not to be fearful, not to be alarmed by any opposition that they may incur by their preaching of the gospel. Stand firm, strive together, suffer fearlessly. That is how they are to begin living out the gospel. That is how they are to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And now as we come to chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul continues to address the same theme how the church is to conduct itself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel by living out in unity. And in the passage that is before us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul will give a tremendous appeal for unity in the church by giving three aspects of unity, all of which are in your bulletin. Number one, the motives of church unity. We could say this is the why of church unity. That is followed by the manifestations of church unity. This is the what of church unity. And thirdly and finally, the means of church unity. This is the how of church unity. And so we begin with the why of church unity in point number one, the motives of church unity in verses 1 through 2a. As we begin this passage in verse 1, let me give you several preliminary thoughts. First of all, you will notice the word that Paul begins verse 1 with, therefore. Now, whenever we read the word therefore, we have to ask, what is it therefore, right? What is therefore? Therefore, well, it is Paul's way of indicating that verse 1 resumes the same theme, the same discussion of church unity that he began in chapter 1 and verse 27. It is continuing that same idea. Second, you will notice that Paul, in verse 1, uses four phrases that all begin with the word if. Now, all of these, on a technical note, are what grammarians call first class conditional statements. Now, that is a technical way of simply saying that there is no uncertainty in what Paul is saying here. If would be better translated in this passage in verse 1 with the word since or with the word because. There is reality in what he is saying. There is no uncertainty in what Paul is saying. Third, all four of these statements in verse 1 that Paul gives form, listen, a striking appeal to unity. Paul does not use harsh words. He does not threaten them. He does not warn them to motivate them to unity. Rather, he appeals to them on the basis of their relationship to God. Paul could be like Nike and simply say, just do it, but he attempts to draw their hearts to unity with the cords of God's goodness to them. And so Paul's first appeal is if there is any encouragement in Christ, or because there is encouragement in Christ, or since there is encouragement in Christ. So he begins by reminding them of Christ, He begins by pointing them to their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, the encouragement that Christ has given to them. This word encouragement is a wonderful word. It is related to the same word Jesus used in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14 when Jesus identified the Holy Spirit. Do you remember how He identified Him as the Helper, the Encourager? This word has the idea of somebody coming alongside of you and giving you help. It can be translated as help or helper, comfort, comforter, encouragement, even as exhortation. And the idea here is that as Christians, Christ is the one who has come alongside of you and given you help. He is the one who has come alongside of you and been your comforter, your encourager. In effect, Paul is saying, remember back to the very first time you learned that you had sinned against a holy God. Remember the weight of the guilt and the animosity of your heart that you experienced, and then remember what it was like when you learned that God so loved you that He gave His Son that He died for your sins. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember the great encouragement that Christ was to you? Do you remember when Christ first became your Savior and your Lord and how from the very moment of saving faith He has always walked alongside of you and given you comfort and given you encouragement and been your helper? Therefore, be unified. Be unified. The second appeal is if there is any consolation of love. The word consolation is very similar to encouragement. It literally means to speak closely to someone. It's the idea of coming close to someone to speak to them in a very consoling way. One commentator says, This word portrays the Lord coming close and whispering words of gentle cheer or tender counsel in a believer's ear. In other words, Paul is saying this, Philippians Remember how much God loves you. God is love. God so loved the world that He loved even you. God loves sinners. And think about how the Lord's love has brought such comfort and consolation to your heart, to your soul, and therefore be unified. Then he gives a third appeal If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, in the first appeal he explicitly mentions the Lord Jesus Christ, and now here in the third appeal he explicitly refers to the Holy Spirit and the fellowship that he gives. The word fellowship is the same word used back in chapter 1 in verse 5 when he talks about their participation, their koinonia, their participation in the gospel. And then again in verse 7, partakers of grace with me, their fellowship of grace with me. It means to share, it means to participate in something. Paul is saying, remember when the Holy Spirit regenerated you. Remember when He made you alive in Christ Jesus. Remember when He caused you to be born from above, to be born again. Remember how He indwells you, how you have a fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and how He has gifted you to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve the church. And remember how He seals you for the day of redemption. Therefore, be unified. And then he gives a fourth appeal in verse 1. If any affection and compassion. Affection is a visceral term. It means bowels. It's the word he uses in chapter 1, verse 8, when he talks about longing for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is an intense love, a heartfelt love. And then he adds compassion. That's a deep sense of love and concern and pity for those who are in need. He appeals to them again on the basis of God's affection and God's compassion upon them. Again, remember, when you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you became familiar with God's affection and His compassion for you, therefore be unified. So again, Paul's appeal to unity, beloved, is based upon, listen, encouragement, consolation, fellowship, affection, and compassion, all of which God has lavished upon them. There are no threats. There are no harsh warnings. Paul is like a father who is tenderly appealing to his son. Now, if you are a parent, you understand that it is sometimes appropriate to use harsh warnings with your children. I find myself oftentimes saying to my kids, now listen, if you do not obey, there will be, and they can finish it, a consequence. A consequence is not a real happy word in our home because it means something hurtful or painful. And listen, that was the approach Paul had to take with the Corinthian church. He talked about in 2 Corinthians not sparing the rod, and he also talked about having to come with severity. In fact, his letter to them was known as the severe letter. Why? Because their disobedience warranted that kind of approach by the Apostle Paul. But here in Philippians, we have an entirely different tone. Paul, again, is like a tender father appealing to his son to obey based upon all the good that he has experienced. He's not warning or threatening to kick him out of the house if he doesn't obey. He's appealing to the Philippians to be united together based upon their relationship to the Lord, based upon all that God has done for them with His affection and His compassion and His encouragement and fellowship and consolation, all that the Lord has done for you. How could you do anything less than be united together as a church? I mean, Paul's language is so skillful, it is intended to melt their hearts into loving affection for each other and a united spirit for one another. And so, beloved, if the Philippians were to fail to unite together as they should, listen, it would be a sin against God who has loved them so much. It would be a sin against the Christ who has come alongside of them and who has been their comforter. It would be a sin against the Holy Spirit who has regenerated them and who has brought them into fellowship with Himself. It would be a sin against the Lord's affection and the Lord's compassion for them. How could they ever think of sinning against such love? This is the basis of Paul's appeal. It's very much like Romans 12, 1. You may remember in Romans where Paul gives 11 chapters of doctrine. He talks about sin. He talks about justification. He talks about sanctification. He talks about all the glorious realities in Romans 8. And then he goes on to talk about in Romans 9 through 11 about Israel and their relationship to the gospel. And there's much there in those chapters. And then when he ends all of the doctrinal section, he gets to Romans 12:1, which begins the practical section. And he says, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Present your body as a living sacrifice. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't warn them. After all that God has done for you, after all of the plurality of mercies of God to you, offer your body as a living sacrifice. And that is the same kind of appeal in Philippians 2. After all that the Lord has done for you, how could you ever think of doing anything less than being one? Unite together, Philippians. Think of what all the Lord has done to you or for you through the gospel of Christ. And then there is a fifth motivation for their unity in verse 2 Make my joy complete. This is the second command in Philippians. First, Is in chapter 1, verse 27. This is the second. And it is a very interesting command. The primary theme of the passage at hand here is unity, as you know. But now Paul begins to intersect their unity with his joy. Paul's joy was somehow related to their unity. Paul has already written about his joy in chapter 1 and verse 4. He talked about how he always offered prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He had great joy over the Philippians. He talked about in verse 18 of chapter 1 that he rejoiced that Christ was proclaimed even by his opponents in Rome. Yes, and I will rejoice. He mentions joy for a third time there. But as we come to chapter 2 and verse 2, what we learn is that Paul had joy, yes, but his joy was partial. It was partial. It was not yet complete. And the only ones who could complete the joy of Paul were the Philippians. And the way that they could complete the joy in the Apostle Paul's heart was if they were to unite together. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's an amazing statement. Listen, do you know what brings maximum joy to the heart of Paul? Or to other godly leaders? Not more money? more power, more respect, more fame, but listen, more unity in the church. That's what will fulfill or complete the joy in Paul's heart. Fullness of joy in the ministry is related, listen, to the unity of the church. I can tell you from personal experience that a divided church greatly diminishes a pastor's joy. Some pastors are attracted to a large church, some to a church with a big heater. (laughs) We don't have that today. Some pastors are attracted to churches that have lots of money, that maybe are located in the nice suburbs. But you know what kind of a church Paul is attracted to? One that is united. That is what is going to maximize the joy of his heart. Now, some say that this command here in verse 2 by Paul is selfish. He's talking about his joy. I mean, that sounds selfish, doesn't it? But I believe the opposite is true. One commentator says, quote, What a man the apostle was. If we were imprisoned, chained, guarded, unjustly accused, vilified by those who ought to be our friends, with no comforts and no guaranteed future, what would our joy be? What would they be? For Paul, it was the Philippians' unity. That's his joy. In other words, Paul is not being selfish. He is far more concerned about the Philippian church than he is about himself. It's not the prospect of being acquitted before Caesar or the prospect of being released from Roman imprisonment and execution that would make his joy complete, but their progress in their unity. That's what would bring joy to his heart. So listen, before you ever think, about doing anything or saying anything that would ever compromise the unity of the church, you need to first of all consider that it will violate the Lord's loving relationship to you. It will be a sin against His affection and His compassion, His kindness, His goodness, His comfort, His consolation, all of His loving kindness to you. And secondly, you need to consider what it will do, listen, to your pastor's joy. You should conduct yourself in such a way as to maximize the joy of your pastor and your leaders. This is a biblical motive, Hebrews 13, 17 where the writer of Hebrews exhorts the people to obey and submit to the leaders. Why? Because it brings joy to those. You don't want those who serve you in leadership to serve with grief. You want them to serve with joy. That is a motive in ministry, to obey the Lord, to have unity in the church, which will maximize the joy of those who lead you. And so I can say to you now, if anyone does anything that would fracture this church, it will break my heart. And that is the appeal of Paul. But what does unity look like? He has been giving a fervent appeal For unity, but what does it look like? This brings us to the what of church unity. Point number two the manifestations of church unity there in verse two. And Paul's going to give four manifestations of church unity here in verse two, beginning with by being of the same mind. What an amazing thought. Literally, that you think the same. It's the idea of being like minded. Having the same mind. So what does unity look like? It's when the church is like-minded. When we think the same way. When we believe, listen, the same gospel. Therefore, when we begin to think about what unity in the church looks like, we have to begin with this, that our unity, beloved, is in the truth. It's in the truth. I say this with great care and concern for all, but we do not have unity with false religions. We do not have unity with Muslims, with Buddhists, with Hindus, or with unconverted Jews. We do not have unity with them. I'm not suggesting to ever be unkind with them. I'm not saying that at all, but they do not love the gospel. They do not worship the same God as we do, and therefore we do not have unity with them. Nor do we have unity with false Christian groups like the Roman Catholic Church, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or with anyone else who perverts the gospel of Christ, Paul, beloved, did not have unity with the Judaizers. You know what he's going to do in chapter 3? He's going to call them dogs. That's strong language. So our unity must begin with truth, it begins with the gospel. It begins by thinking the same way, by being like minded with regard to the truth of the gospel. As you are well aware, there is the ecumenical movement, which is this wide and vast movement that appeals for all who profess the name of Jesus, and really for other religions to all come together and hold hands and to have this kind of unity. And one expression of that is from an Episcopal bishop of Virginia who said several years ago, and I quote him, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism, always choose heresy. That is a blasphemous statement. If you have to make a choice between heresy and schism, what do you always choose? According to Him, you always choose heresy. In other words, for the sake of uniting together, it is okay if we embrace those who deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of uniting together, it is okay if we hold hands and embrace as brothers and sisters those who believe that you can be saved by works. For the sake of unity, we can embrace those who deny the virgin birth of Christ, His miracles, His literal death, His literal resurrection. Beloved, Paul repudiates that kind of unity. Our unity begins by being like-minded about the gospel. How can we be unified with those who don't believe the gospel? The gospel is our basis for unity. Again, when I say we don't have unity with such and such group of people, I'm not appealing to be unkind, to be mean. We would appeal to them to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And until they do, we do not have fellowship one with another or unity with them. Second of all, he says, maintaining the same love. And boy, this is so important. Do you know that it is possible for two people in the church who affirm the same gospel and who sign the same doctrinal statement to not have unity? I've seen it. People who both love the same gospel, grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and they could sign the same creed, the same doctrinal statement, and yet there is no unity between them? How is that possible? I'll tell you how. They don't love each other. They don't love each other. They may agree on the gospel, they may agree on sound doctrine, but they at the same time may have sinful attitudes in their hearts and unloving attitudes in their heart that prevent their unity. Listen, we can affirm the same gospel and at the same time be rude to each other. At the same time, be unkind, and be impatient, and gossip with each other, or be argumentative, be harsh. The Bible condemns those things. And those things, listen, they wreck unity. Notice the repetition of the word same. They were to have the same mind, and they were to have the same love. The idea of the same love is to love everyone in the church in the same way. Do you do that? Do you love everyone in the church the same way? It is to love all in the church equally. It's to not play favorites and to not just love those who are lovely or to love those who are attractive or to love those who love you back. It's to love all. Even those who are not attractive, even those who are not lovely, even those who do not love you back. Now, I understand that from an emotional standpoint, we are all attracted to certain people more than others, and that is not what Paul is talking about. He is talking about having the same kind of love for all, which is a love of the will in which we choose to love everybody with a love that he defines in First Corinthians 13. Love is patient. We show patience with all. Love is kind. We show kindness to all. Love is not jealous. Love is not provoked. Love is not self-willed. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Beloved, that is how we love each other, with a forgiving love, a patient love, a kind love. All of those things. That's how we treat each other. As I've said to you before, love is the highest Christian virtue, and that is one of the manifestations of unity. Is one of, it is one of the ingredients of unity. And so what does unity in the church look like? It looks like this when everyone in the church loves everyone else. No one is excluded. Paul said in Colossians 3, love is the perfect bond of unity. You want a perfect bond of unity? Love is it. There's a third manifestation. He says, united in spirit. Literally one-souled. This is where we get the idea of Soul brother. You know what we are? Soul brothers. Right? Soul sisters. It's a beautiful term. It is a term of intimacy. It's a term that denotes us being united together at the deepest part of who we are. When our souls are knit together and share this intimacy that God has designed for us to experience as brothers and sisters in Christ, one soul united in spirit. And lastly, he says, intent on one purpose, literally thinking one thing. It is very similar to the first manifestation, the same mind. He has the word mind again. He uses again the second time. It's like coming full circle. It means to have one purpose. We all live for the same things, don't we? I mean, if there is unity in our body, we are all living for the same things. We all have the same ambitions, namely to please Christ, to exalt Christ, to advance His gospel. We don't have different agendas. We don't have different purposes as a church body. We all have the same purpose, the same agenda, the same goal, which is, again, to please Christ, to exalt Christ, to advance His gospel. That's the purpose for which we live. If we are all living to please Jesus Christ in everything we do, then we will experience the kind of unity that Paul is exhorting the church to. Two people who both love Jesus Christ and will do anything they can to please Him, listen, will not divide, because they both long to please Christ to exalt Him, to glorify Him, to advance His gospel. Now, let me say this to you, a very important note about unity. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. That is a very key distinction. It is not the same as uniformity. So when Paul exhorts the church to be of the same mind to be united in soul, to have the same purpose. He doesn't mean that we have to have the same opinion on every single thing. He doesn't mean that we cannot have personal preferences. We don't have to all wear the same outfits. That would be uniformity. We don't all have to eat the same meals. That would be uniformity. That would be like a bunch of robots. Listen, we don't all have to love the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) That's for Brian and and Michael. (laughs) They're in my fellowship group. It doesn't mean that we agree on every nuance of theology, that we agree on every interpretation of every passage in the Scripture. Listen, we may disagree on a thousand different things, and I'm sure that we do. We have different views of the details of eschatology. We may have different views on details of child rearing. We may have differences on our style of music, on of what color we think the carpet should be in the sanctuary. There are lots of preferences, lots of opinions, and Paul is not saying, let's eradicate those things. That would be impossible. He's not espousing uniformity. He's espousing unity. And what unity means, beloved, is that whatever secondary differences we have, whatever differences of opinion that we have, whatever personal preferences we have, we must never allow them to compromise our unity in the church. Our unity to please Christ, to exalt Christ, to exalt the gospel of Christ, and to love each other. Beloved, anything less than what Paul is exhorting the church to here in Philippians 2, listen, is a scandal. It is a scandal. This is the kind of unity that our Lord prayed for in John 17. I want you to turn there for a moment. John 17 and verse 20. This is our Lord's prayer as He approaches the cross, His high priestly prayer, and It is what is really revealing the heart of our Lord as He comes to the end of His earthly life to make atonement for His people. In John 17, 20 and 21, He says, "...I do not ask on behalf of these alone." He's talking about the original disciples. "...but for those also who believe in Me through their word," and that's you and me. "...we believe through the word of the apostles." They were faithful to advance the gospel. And those to whom the gospel came, they advanced the gospel. And this has happened from generation to generation to generation throughout two millennia. And here we are believing through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. There is a sense in which in the church we have a spiritual position of oneness. We are all one in Christ, Galatians 3.28. We have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12.13. But the unity that Jesus prayed for, beloved, is a visible unity. It is a unity that the world can see, and by virtue of seeing it, can come to saving faith in Christ. In other words, Jesus prays for a gospel unity, an evangelistic unity. And listen, the pattern of our unity is the unity of whom? The Trinity. Let me ask you this morning, is there any division in the Trinity? Is there anything but a perfect one-mindedness? A one-souled experience by the Trinity? Well, just like there is no division within the members of the Trinity, neither should there be any division in the church. And the same kind of unity that our Lord Jesus Christ prayed for in John 17 is the same kind of unity that the Apostle Paul appeals to with regard to the Philippians. So, beloved, unity in the church is to be pursued at all costs, with the exception of one thing, the gospel. We may not unite with those who compromise the gospel, but with those who love the gospel, we pursue unity with them at all costs. Do you understand that? Do you do that? That's the prayer of the Lord, and that's the appeal of the Apostle. This morning we have seen the why and the what of church unity. Next time we will see the how of church unity in verses 3 and 4. Well, This morning as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, let's consider the meditation theme together in your bulletin as a way of preparing our hearts to worship our Lord through this ordinance. Number one, and the theme is gospel unity and appeal to gospel unity. Number one, our unity together is produced by the gospel. Because we have all been saved by the same grace of God... Through faith in the same Lord Jesus Christ, we are one. Number two, our unity together is motivated by the gospel. Because of what the Lord has done for us through the gospel, how could we ever sin against His love and not be united together in the church? Number three, our unity together is governed by the gospel. Our differences of opinion and personal preferences are secondary to exalting Christ together, advancing His gospel together, and loving each other. Number four, our unity together must be radically pursued at all costs with the exception of compromising the truth of the gospel. And then number five, are you doing everything you can to promote unity in the church and everything you can to avoid disunity in the church. Let's take a few moments and prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you. For the great comfort your love has brought to us. And the great encouragement that Christ is to us. And the wonderful fellowship the Holy Spirit brings to us. We thank you for your affection and your compassion for us. And Father, what grieves our hearts more than anything else is when we violate your love for us by our sin. But Father, we thank you for this table. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ ordained this ordinance to be a constant reminder to us, that we have a Savior. We have a Savior who not only loved us upon the cross, but who continues to love us daily, hourly, every minute. And that though sin is heinous and evil, there is no sin that we could ever commit that would separate us from your love, that would be beyond your ability by grace to forgive We thank You that the Lord Jesus has taken all of our sins and borne them in His body on the tree. We thank You that His death, His atonement, is sufficient for us. And Father, we ask that You would search us and know us, and that by the Holy Spirit You would bring attention to words or behaviors or attitudes, motives that fail to be worthy of the gospel. Father, as we turn away from those things now, we thank you that you meet us with mercy and with kindness. We thank you again for the body of Christ and for his blood, which is our everlasting source of redemption. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.